Podcast, exploring the layers of the heart beneath our belief statements. I'm Brian Fisher. Well, that's a provocative opening. I might just keep that one. This is episode 84, Kingdom Dwellers, Restful in the Tension. We're looking at qualities of a deep disciple living in the kingdom. Well, let's go back to that provocative opening. What do we mean by layers of the heart beneath our belief statements? If you go to our website at soilandroots.org and click on the resources page, there's a free PDF there called Heart View. If you're able to pull it up, please do so. If not, I'll briefly describe it to you. It's a picture of a heart. On the outside of the heart, we find the eight indicators that we explored back in season two. These are the eight signs of what's going on in our inner life. They are our thoughts, our emotions, our health, our relationships, our behaviors, our words, and how we use time and money. These are very powerful tools and guides for our journey into deep discipleship. By exploring these indicators with God and a trusted friend, we often develop very important insights into what's going on in the depths of our hearts, and that often leads to greater intimacy with Jesus. Now, inside our hearts, at least two layers, are beliefs, and underneath those are ideas and our desires. You see these two layers portrayed as concentric circles in the pictures. Beliefs in the outer circle and ideas and desires in the inner circle. Now, we often assume that the bottom layer or the inner circle of our hearts is actually our beliefs. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection, the church. I believe God can be trusted. I believe God loves me. These might be some of our belief statements. We intellectually agree with them. And often our whole hearts agree with them too. I think when the Bible talks about belief, that's what it means. A wholehearted, fully embodied agreement. We believe with our entire humanity, our mind, our body, and our heart. However, today, belief tends to be more oriented towards intellectual consent, a mental agreement. And our beliefs don't always match our underlying ideas and desires. We've talked about the power and governance of ideas on Southern Roots many times, but let's just remind ourselves of the definition. An idea its an assumption or a conclusion or a principle in which our hearts are rooted, but of which we generally aren't aware. And these ideas are not so much intellectual statements as they are experienced realities. They're a little bit mysterious. They're assumptions from which our hearts operate, something like the pistons of a car engine. They're down there working, though we generally don't pay too much attention to them. We've explored all sorts of categories of ideas already. Ideas of identity. Who are we? Anthropology. What are we? Value. What are we worth? Power. Purpose. Love. Origin. Time. There are an untold number of categories and types of ideas, and some subset of those seep into the soils of our hearts, primarily when we're very young children. And then they govern us. They govern who we are for the rest of our lives. So discipleship, spiritual formation, at least as we've defined it here, is the transformation of dark ideas, those from the kingdom of darkness, into light ideas, those from God's kingdom. So here's an example. Let's just take an idea of value. From a Christian standpoint, you and I have inestimable value. 
We are made in the image of the creator. We are created to rule and steward the earth. It's an extraordinary privilege. We're so valuable, we're eternal. We're so valuable that when we screwed things up, God himself died for us, rescued us, so that we might be restored to him and others and ourselves and even our role in creation and culture. C.S. Lewis wrote, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And so this is many Christians' belief statement. Humans possess extraordinary value. We are worth so much because God instills that worth in us. But does this belief align with our unconscious ideas, the conclusions and assumptions our hearts operate from? How would we even know? One of the easiest ways to determine if our ideas of value match up to our belief statements about value is to consider two of our indicators, our thought patterns, and maybe our words. If we stop and assess our thought patterns, do we think of ourselves and others as having extraordinary value? When we talk to ourselves, do we speak to ourselves as someone worth dying for, as an immortal being? Or do we berate, condemn, and inflict shame on ourselves? Or if we're more the arrogant type, do we think, berate, condemn, and inflict shame on others in our thoughts or through our spoken words? It's tough stuff, deep stuff, soil than root stuff. To examine the bottom layers of our hearts to see what aligns with our beliefs and what doesn't, that's the work of a deep disciple. It's the work of Jesus. We've given other examples of this type of disconnection over the last few years. The woman who intellectually believes she's beautiful because she's created by God, and yet her underlying ideas drive her eating disorder. The man who serves and serves at church for decades, only to wake up one day and quit the faith altogether because it's no longer truth to him. His ideas conflicted with his beliefs, and his ideas won out. The married couple who loves Jesus, believes in eternal life, but can't seem to save any money because they use spending as a way to soothe and pacify darker, hidden ideas. They say they trust God, and they believe they do, though their money habits reveal they're operating from at least some wounds and hurts with which they don't yet trust God. Now, to some extent, every one of us operates from some ideas and desires that contradict our intellectual beliefs. But a deep disciple explores the reasons for that disintegration. And that exploration involves getting to know and understanding at least two hearts, God's and ours. We're working through season four. It's all about the forgotten kingdom. It's one of our primary problems. And we're in this little mini-series on some qualities of a deep disciple or a kingdom dweller. So far, we've explored courageous curiosity, particularity, seeking out and honoring and focusing on the individual, and the gradual release of control. A deep disciple becomes increasingly comfortable not having to figure everything out and not having to control people or circumstances or environments. A deep disciple is at peace knowing that most of our lives are outside of our control anyhow. So today we're exploring how a deep disciple rests, even in the middle of tension. Now going back a minute, as you might expect, this disconnection between the ideas and desires that truly power us and the beliefs we hold well, results in some tension. The more we're aware of this difference between our ideas and our beliefs, the more tension we may feel. Well, that doesn't sound like fun. The good news is this tension is expressed and explored all over the Bible. Ecclesiastes, Job, the Gospels, Paul. 
When our desires and ideas don't align with the kingdom of light, we do often sin. And Paul bemoans this tension in his famous passage in Romans about doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he should. But this tension doesn't always involve sin. Not every disconnection results in disobedience. Sometimes tension is just tension. It does result in relational struggle and challenge with God, others, ourselves, and even with creation. When our ideas and desires don't align with our beliefs, we're going to feel it. We're going to sense it. That is, if we're paying attention. Either way, it does impact us and those around us. Here's a recent example. I was chatting with a friend of mine last week, and we were discussing 2 Corinthians 12. It's the famous thorn in the flesh passage. Paul is dealing with some horrible sort of affliction, and he writes this. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My friend asked me what I thought of this exchange between God and Paul, and I answered, frankly, this is not one of my favorite passages. I don't really care for it. He laughed, maybe a bit nervously, and then he asked, why? I said, well, Paul was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, betrayed, disregarded, abandoned, all for Jesus. Yet when Paul implored God to help him with whatever was tormenting him, God apparently stayed silent the first two times, and then on the third request said his grace was sufficient. In other words, no, I'm not going to remove your affliction. God had healed him before. He was healed of blindness after his conversion. There's the somewhat mysterious passage in Acts where Paul's stoned and left for dead and suddenly gets up and walks into the city. Seems something supernatural happened there. Part of me just wants to know why God wouldn't allow Paul to catch a break this time. Paul knows the answer. He says it in the passage so that he wouldn't exalt himself. But that seems like a pretty high price to pay for staying humble. So what tension am I expressing when I confess I don't really care for the passage? My belief statement says that God is faithful, that all good things come from him. Yet my ideas of God, the assumptions from which I truly operate, are sometimes based more on who I think God should be compared to who he actually is. And to be uncomfortably transparent, I sometimes like my ideas more than God's. Let me put it this way. My unconscious ideas, my assumptions about what makes God good, sometimes conflict with what God has revealed about his own goodness. And I don't always like God's goodness. Does that sound strange? C.S. Lewis wrote, We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. He also wrote, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to the dentist? My ideas of God's goodness involve very little pain and suffering. God's ideas, however, often do. Thus, the source of my tension. Well, let's go back to Paul and how he was evangelized. Jesus brought Paul into the kingdom in a rather dramatic fashion, a blinding light, a disembodied voice. But let's go to another part of the story that doesn't get as much press. Jesus appears to another disciple named Ananias and instructs him to go meet Paul and heal his sudden blindness. Remember what Jesus told Ananias about Paul? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How much he must suffer? Well, so there's that tension again. Lest we think this only applies to Paul, there's the whole take up your cross and follow me passage along with whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Sounds like a terrible evangelism pitch. Come follow Jesus and you'll inherit eternal life, but you're also going to suffer. You're going to experience loss, heartache, pain, sorrow. In other words, to some extent, your life in Christ will follow the actual life of Christ. Not sure, but if we included that in our evangelism scripts, we may find ourselves with far fewer converts. Though, perhaps we must find far more disciples. Maybe we should think about that. Maybe part of the reason modern culture is experiencing a large number of people deconstructing from the Christian faith is that no one told them the Christian life is hard. Modern evangelism has sometimes been boiled down to a sales pitch that doesn't clearly define the terms of the arrangement. Hey, the Christian life is hard. At times, and I use this word carefully, it's excruciatingly hard. We all suffer. I suppose the difference is whether we choose to suffer alone or allow the one who suffered the most to join in our suffering. This type of tension will eventually arrive at the doorstep of anyone who truly claims to follow Christ and has centered their lives around the kingdom. Uh, for the person who's been, quote, converted, and then goes about their lives in willful ignorance, quoting isolated Bible verses as they do whatever they want, living above the surface and refusing to wrestle with the difficulties of the faith, it's probably a different story. When we first moved into our house in Texas, I met a guy across the alley. He was married with a few little kids. He was young, handsome, high energy, easy to talk to, though he's one of those people who didn't really say anything when he talked. One day I walked out to a scene of moving trucks and packing boxes at his house and I asked him what was going on. He said, well, we're getting divorced. When I expressed my sadness at the news, he replied, well, I screwed up, cheated on her. But it's all grace, man. It's all grace. Isn't that what it's all about? It's just all about grace. To this day, I have no idea what he meant. Did he read that on a meme somewhere? But for the person yearning after Jesus, desperate to put on Christ as it were, there's going to be occasional, if not somewhat frequent, real, authentic tension. How do we reconcile the problem of evil? How do we deal with broken dreams and unmet good desires, loss of relationships? When I do the right thing and still experience harm, what do I do with that? When I do the wrong thing and I get away with it, what do I do with that? God's ideas of justice, they seem pretty complicated. We see so much injustice, we cry out for justice, we want to be instruments of justice, and yet, so often, the rich get richer and the poor get screwed. We know that justice favors the powerful, it's been that way for as long as human beings have walked the earth. Justice continues to peek out from beneath her blindfold and cater to those who pay her. From Genesis 3 through almost the end of Revelation, we find evidence of tension. It's written into the grand story and doesn't seem to find any final resolution until heaven and earth are finally rejoined. So the question isn't how to satisfy all of this tension in our lives, it's not possible. The questions we've raised here, and so many more, have been raised for millennia and have yet to be resolved. The question for anyone wanting to become a deeper disciple is this, how do we live with the tension? Well, there are at least three options to answer that question in addition to just giving up and walking away. 
We've talked about total deconstruction already. Sometimes the tension is just too much for some people and they leave the faith altogether. But for those of us who find ourselves with nowhere else to go, how might we respond to difficult, sometimes heart-wrenching tension? Well, here are the three options. The it's all good approach, the it's like Job approach, and the it's like Jacob approach. Number one, it's all good. Number two, it's just like Job. Number three, it's just like Jacob. So let's go through these one at a time. It's all good. When I was a kid, one of the leading women in our church lost her husband to a sudden illness. It was a terrible tragedy. Over the next few days, people in the church marveled at her strength, her resolve, her selflessness. Quote, she came to the funeral and refused to be comforted. Instead, she comforted those around her. Her faith is so strong, she's not even grieving. Someone had overheard the widow saying, This is God's will. It's God's will. I trust in God. Even as a teenager, something about the situation gave me pause. The woman just lost her husband. So did she not allow herself to grieve and be served by the church? Well, is she some sort of a super Christian? So in touch with Jesus that she accepted the death of her husband without so much as a question or any attention to her own heart? I appreciated her apparent selflessness. Surely she was denying herself to love those around her. Still, does loving others mean we ignore and deny our own suffering? We hear this type of sentiment from Christians fairly regularly. The father, who's miserable in his career but claims that's where God has him, so it's all good. He desires something else, something different, something better, but it's easier to present a sort of sacrificial face than to just take the risk of moving away from what's steady and comfortable. I once asked a full-time minister whether he enjoyed his work, whether he sensed God's pleasure and joy in his career. What does it matter, he replied. This is what God called me to do. It doesn't matter what I think. It's the missionary on the field who, in truth, hates her life and her calling. But it's all good. She trusts God, trusts his plan, trusts that she will eventually adapt to what she thought would be a much different life. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Is that true? Well, sure, it's true, though we should take care of how we define the word good. If someone is facing broken dreams, unmet expectations, dashed desires, and disrupted relationships, and is still able to rest in God's goodness amid their hardship, well, that's really good. But is it real? Is it a fully embodied, wholehearted trust amid the tension, or are we parroting what we think we're supposed to say when things don't go the way we think they should? When someone is going through a tough time and it involves tension, I often hear a well-meaning brother or sister say, just take it to the foot of the cross. Just give it to Jesus. It's all good. Just give it to Jesus. I confess I've heard that phrase hundreds of times, and I don't know what it means. It's a Christian euphemism that sounds encouraging, but at least for me, is fairly empty. I guess it has something to do with surrendering something. But how exactly is someone supposed to do that? Is it more important that I'm viewed as a mature Christian or that I truly am an authentic Christian, a person who is at complete liberty to express my sorrow, sadness, doubt, disappointment amid tension, to admit we just don't like the way God handles some things sometimes. Well, let's talk about the second approach to handling tension. It's just like Job. Now, Job is an amazing book of the Bible. I don't know if there is a better treatment of unanswered questions and suffering and the role of man and the purposes of God in all of literature. Job is the go-to book for the Christian who asks why in the middle of tension and doesn't get a specific response. Job can provide tremendous insight and comfort. 
And yet, even Job leaves us with unanswered questions and doesn't attempt to resolve every curiosity. After 37 chapters of Job and his friends going back and forth about Job's terrible trials, it's God's turn. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it, or where were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God spends the next few chapters taking Job and his friends on a tour around the universe, asking them if they understand how creation and nature and the cosmos work. In the end, Job relents and surrenders to the majesty and largeness of God. God never revealed to Job why he allowed such terrible suffering. So is it good and right and helpful to dwell on the character, grandeur, and glory of God when we experience inevitable tension? Absolutely. Is it good and right to remind ourselves that we are not God, that his ways are so much higher than ours, and to ask for God to resolve some of our tension may not be, in the grand scheme of things, good for us? Yes, it is. But should Job's conclusion be our initial default position? Meaning, when we encounter tension in our theology, in our lives, in our relationships, in our broken good desires, and even in our bodies, do we immediately throw up our hands and say, well, it's like Job, we just can't understand what God is doing? Let's remember that Job and his friends spent 37 chapters discussing, debating, wrestling with some extraordinarily difficult questions and tension before God reminded them of who he is. So before we just proclaim, it's all good, or it's like Job, perhaps there's a longer, more formative path to take. Perhaps the path to rest in the middle of all this tension is not by just proclaiming God's goodness, though that's true. Perhaps the path to resting in the middle of all this tension is not to quickly conclude God is just too big for us to grasp, though that's also true. Perhaps the path to resting in the middle of the inevitable tension is to take Jacob's approach to wrestle with God, and perhaps others, and even ourselves. Now you want to talk about tension... Jacob, not exactly the poster child for healthy morals, is returning home to see his brother Esau, years after he tricked him out of his birthright and his blessing. The last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. The evening before the planned reunion, Jacob wrestles with God all night long, and that struggle changes him, his character, his perspective, even his name. Though God doesn't answer all of Jacob's requests for information, God does bless him, even as he injures him. There seems to be something very important in our journey into deep discipleship concerning wrestling, negotiating, debating, and authentically appearing before God as we really are. Not with all the platitudes and the niceties and the formalities, but in the condition we find ourselves. Good, bad, indifferent, frustrated, confused, joyful, thankful, angry. Before we jump to claiming it's all good or it's like Job, Perhaps there are some deeper wells to experience first. God didn't answer all of Job's complaints and questions, but God certainly spoke. And throughout the Bible, let's remind ourselves, God did answer specific questions and complaints and requests for explanation. Look, we're curious beings. We're built with a desire to find meaning and truth and satisfaction through exploring, discovering, seeking, asking, and at times complaining. God made us this way. 
So before we simply dismiss our tensions by either proclaiming God's goodness or proclaiming God's greatness, both of which are true, perhaps we should spend some time wrestling. Just this week I was reading Albert has. He lists characteristics of what he calls the true self, which is pretty much the same as what we refer to as a deep disciple. One of the qualities he lists is this, focused on the here and now. Quote, the vast majority of us suffer from amnesia of the present. We think that the real action is somewhere else. Some of us have lost touch with the present moment because we prefer to live in the past. We're forever mulling over yesterday, regretting it, analyzing it, glorifying it with nostalgia. Sentimentality, regret, and guilt are the prices we pay when we live yesterday today. Others of us are always jumping ahead to the future, anxious about the next weekend, planning next month, wondering about next year. With antacids in our pockets and ulcers in our stomachs, we race toward tomorrow. Anxiety and worry are the prices we pay when we leave the home of the present moment and try to live tomorrow today. Those who have returned to where God has placed them, who live at home, are focused on the here and now. They recognize that the past and the future are mental constructs that refer to the non-existent, end quote. I reread the passage three or four times, suddenly wondering just how much of my life I spend in the past or the future instead of the present. The tension began to rise as I concluded that, although I spend more time worrying about the future than regretting the past, I don't spend a whole lot of time in the present. So now I have a choice. I can rightfully claim that it's all good and trust that God is working this all out, and he is. Maybe I take it to the foot of the cross, whatever that means. Or I can rightfully claim that it's like Job, and that I may never understand the reasons I spend too much time concerned with the past or the future. And I might be right. Or I can choose to do the hard work of wrestling, perhaps with God, certainly myself. Perhaps it's time to ask some of those pesky why questions. Why do I spend so much time worrying about the future, attempting to control it, attempting to determine its outcome? If a deep disciple's life is characterized by resting amid the inevitable tensions, be they theological stumbling blocks, the problem of evil, a preponderance of suffering, or perhaps general confusion, perhaps the best path, the best journey to that place of rest isn't just through declaring God's goodness or chalking it up to his majesty and wonder. It may come best through doing the much harder work of wrestling, confronting, debating, negotiating, perhaps complaining, questioning, and even lamenting. Perhaps this deep, peaceful rest in the middle of tension is so restful because we become exhausted through the wrestling, and we finally truly surrender body, mind, and spirit. It's not the surrender at the first sign of struggle. Anyone can do that. It's the surrender that comes after we've battled with our very best. We've argued with everything we have. We've cajoled and cried and argued and reminded and contested until, like Jacob, we're just spent. And still, we demand a blessing. And perhaps the blessing, after such a dark night of toil and pain, is a genuine, real freedom. The freedom of rest in the middle of tension, finally knowing, truly knowing, that this rest doesn't come from pithy belief statements. It comes from the satisfaction that we've wrestled with God and it's good. And perhaps we finally come to realize that the wrestling is the point. Thanks for listening. For more information on this podcast, the Ministry of Soil and Roots, Greenhouses, 
the Soylent Roots book, our growing collection of spiritual formation articles, check out SoylentRoots.org. Find us on Facebook at Soylent Roots Podcast. And as always, you can shoot us an email at fish at SoylentRoots.org. And we'll see you next time.